This is Steven Taylor, and I'm on Musicians on the Record today. Hit it. Hi, welcome to Musicians on the Record. I'm David Ward. This is the show where we're getting the musician's story. And this is cool. I've been a fan of this guy's for a long time. He is killing it on YouTube. Drummer, author, educator extraordinaire, Stephen Taylor is on the show today. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's, a, it's an honor to get to do this. Oh, wow. It's, it's my honor to have you. I really appreciate your time with this. And... Um, you know, I've been a fan of yours watching you online. It seems like for years I first connected with you on Drumeo when you were doing lessons there. And, uh, you know, I recently just been seeing a ton of your videos on YouTube. You've been killing it. So I'm like, I got to talk to this guy. And, uh, and, and you said you have a gig tonight. Uh, I can, do. Yeah. Can we start with that? How do you prepare for a gig? Um, how do I prepare for a gig? So um, I actually start before I ever sit down at the instrument. I learned this years and years ago. I got my first. Um, so I started playing, if you want to call it professionally, getting paid to play when I was 16. Stage shows, um, wedding bands, that type of a stuff. And um, and I, I learned early on. I got my first full-time gig on Bourbon Street in New Orleans when I was 19. And I played down there for about three years at John Wayner's Famous Door. Um, and then BBC Bourbon Street Blues Company um, was the house drummer there. And so uh, I learned early on that I could learn a lot of things just by listening. And so whenever I start uh, uh, preparing for a gig now, one of the first things I'm going to do is make a playlist, whether that be on YouTube or Spotify or whatever it is. Okay. And that will be my running playlist for that group if I ever revisit them. And I just put all those songs in a category and then I print the charts off and I do a kind of a once over of the music right now. My catalog of songs is, is pretty massive as far as what I have played since 19 and uh, the different, the different areas I've been able to play in uh, a lot of country in Nashville. So I've had to catch up in that genre. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then I go through and kind of segment the ones that are going to take just a, a look over the chart versus the ones that, oh, I'm actually going to have to work this one out versus the ones that I may need to make a couple cheat sheets on those uh, just to so jog my memory for some of them. Yeah. Uh, so for this gig, we actually had a rehearsal. Uh, this was with some really great musicians and, and friends of mine and uh, a little place in downtown Franklin, which is just south of Nashville uh, called Kimbrough's Pick and Parlor. Yeah. So it's going to be kind of a fun laid back. Last time we played, there was a Monday night and they said that they'd never had the place so full. So hopefully we can... Hopefully, fingers crossed, we can repeat that. So you bet, rocking on a Monday night. So you've played with this band before. Let's yeah, uh, the artist's name is Taylor Scott. Uh, me and the guitar player, who's from California, uh, session guy, and um, we have played together at church. We met at church, and then the bass player actually we brought him in this time. Um, the other guitar player, I forget where he's from, but uh, I met him in this group. Taylor does some original stuff, and then we do a lot of what would be called outlaw country. Yeah. And so you have bro country, which is what a lot of the radio is. And then you have the guys that are coming behind that and saying, actually, this isn't country guys. This is what <laughs> country should be. So uh, we play a lot of that, some blues, uh, some of his originals. And uh, yeah, so it should be fun. The last gig we had with this, uh, the bass player was um, not fantastic. And so we've brought someone else in and, uh, and, and it's, it's a much better <laughs> 
situation this go around. Yeah. You know, one of the things I love about your videos is you have a lot of practical wisdom about playing gigs, certainly about practicing and what, you know, the grooves and fills and all of that amazing stuff from, from Pat Boone, Debbie Boone fills to the slickest licks, all of it. But you know, just to hear the real world practical advice is very cool. Tell me about rehearsing with the band. What are some of those best practices to keep it efficient, to keep it fun? Yeah. So when I'm rehearsing with a band, the rehearsal is, and to your point, uh, thank you, kind words, but um, I actually struggled with the online thing for a while, understanding how it worked because I never learned um i didn't i didn't learn licks and i i was always playing with music i was i was gigging from a very early age i got my drum set when i was 14 and that week i played three different gigs at my church i was roped into those yeah. <laughs> and, and pulled kicking and screaming so from the first week i had my drum set i've i've been playing with musicians and learning to watch the hands of the piano player and so when i came online it was very uh it was odd for me to be playing by myself all the time and for it to be so focused on licks and yeah. uh, things that weren't really applicable. And it took me a couple of years to really wrap my head around, okay, let's just follow this path and show them uh, really how you, how you need to set this up. And that's a good question. How do you prepare for a rehearsal? Um, or how do you uh, go about in a rehearsal, making sure you get the most out of it? Yeah. Um, rehearsal is not the time to learn the music. You should come already having the music learned. Um, you should get there early so you have everything set up so that you can actually spend the rehearsal time rehearsing. You should have all your notes or questions that you have beforehand. Mm-hmm. Have all the music printed out. Have all the yeah, all of those things. You know, devices are great these days, but I had a guy to a rehearsal not too long ago, and he brought an iPhone. So the whole time he's like leaning over the iPhone trying to read the chart, and I'm like, bro, yeah. you're trying to read a full chart on an iPhone on the floor while you're standing up, you know? Right. Not going to work. Right. So, um. So a lot of it is just being prepared so that those two hours that you're with the band can be about becoming a cohesive unit and troubleshooting. Hey, there's a weird two bar in that, in that bridge. Can we go ahead over that? There's some hits on coming out of that course. Let's do those. So you're, you're doing more of the polishing rather than actually building, you know, the, the, the ship you're, you're, you're more polishing it. So that's coming into a rehearsal already knowing the music is the key. And if you, yeah, and I think that's great advice. Learning songs, Stephen, you know, there's a lot online that you can get charts with, but there are some that, you know, the charts aren't available. What's the best way to learn a song if that's not available? Chart it yourself. Um, I do. uh, So in Nashville, we use a lot of what's called the Nashville number system. Yes which is a really great system because every chord is assigned a number, you know, the one chord, the four chord, the five chord, no matter what, (coughs) excuse me, what key you're in, four chord is going to be a four chord. Um, And so it's easy to read those. And then, you know, let's play that in B flat instead of C or whatever it may be. But they also doing it by the number system frees you up because it's a very open canvas for you to create on. Um, And so I kind of went from that and I've got my own hybrid method of charting Uh, and I'll, you know, if we have a sheet of paper, I'll just put about a two inch margin over here and I put I V one, you know, CH one V two CH two. And I make a rough roadmap and I can chart a song with one listen through, uh, just very quickly going through and making a chart and then go back through and get the hits and things like that. I don't like for drummers to get too 
or musicians in general to get too in the chart mm-hmm. because then we forget to be ourselves. I had somebody come through a couple of months ago to do a lesson, um, college degree, fantastic player, fantastic player. So I already knew going in, like, they're going to be at a certain level if we have an undergrad in this. Sure. And so he said, well, can I play for you? I said, sure. You know, and, and he played and played the chart perfectly, note for note perfectly. And I said, that's amazing, man. You can really, your chart reading skills are fantastic, great pocket, but I still don't have a clue what you sound like. Mm. Um, and so the lesson became about get your head out of the music. We know the song. Yeah. What do you do? What do you sound like in that song? While still referencing the song, what do you sound like? So I found I find those charts that keep it open a little bit and aren't so structurally notated with every. Right. Uh, they just kind of give me a, a roadmap to go by. Yeah, because that's important to put your own voice in that, right? That's why that's why people hire you. I mean, uh, if you're playing, Mo, I just did a lesson not too long ago. Uh, actually, this past weekend on the YouTube channel about uh, Motown. So the top five fields you should learn if you're learning Motown and. There are fills that Benny Benjamin and Uriel Jones and uh, Richard Pistol Allen used uh, and, and a couple other drummers that they had yeah. over and over in those songs. Right. Right. When you're playing Motown, you got to know those fills. Right. You know, they're not hard. But if you're playing My Girl, you have to know like it is a standard fill for that song. But in that framework and those grooves, can I weave some of my personality and my feel and that type of thing in there? That's why you get called back it's for your professionalism and what you bring to the music. Mm. Uh, I feel anyway. Yeah, that's great. So it doesn't have to be the note for note. No, respect the parts, obviously, but sure. you know, put put a little of yourself in there, and that doesn't always mean more notes. By the way, right. <laughs> sometimes it means a lot less notes. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, as drummers, we can think more is better, but that's not always true, right? So, yeah. If you are in a hired gun situation, then Stephen. How do you do that as far as keeping your place sort of with the band or in the song? Part of it's got to be some rehearsing, right? But that's a challenging situation. Yeah. So if I'm a hired gun, uh, whoever hired me is is my if, boss. Yeah. And so I'm going to go in there really wanting to find out what makes that person tick, what makes them happy, what makes them not happy. If it's an artist that has hired me and I know it's dependent upon them, if I get rehired, I'm going to make sure that I'm constantly checking in with them. The biggest thing with being a hired gun, though, is is your personality and the hang. Uh, you, you just have to, you can't be a lame person. Yeah. I mean, to me, it's a given. Your playing is going to have to be on a certain level. They hired you on this level. Right. You need to come in being able to play. Right. Beyond that, it's all of the other particulars as to if you get hired again. And a lot of that, is just, are you a good person to be around? Like, do you show up prepared? Did you show up on time? Did they have to think? I really want them not to have to think about. Yep. I want them to show up at the rehearsal and turn around and be like, oh, he's here, set up, ready to go. Sure. Yep, ready to go. That's what I, I want to be the guy in the background that they don't think about, but it's always there as kind of the, the pillar for them to build off of. Yeah. Right. And so when you're in that hired gun situation, I've told guys, you know, it, obviously friends and stuff, I'm not sniping gigs from them, but I've had other gigs where I come in as a sub and my goal is to go in there and take the gig, whether I actually want to take the gig from them or not. But I want to get that phone call of saying, Hey man, we really dug what you did. Would you consider that to me? That's my challenge of going in and being as good or better than what they already have. And then obviously if you're friends with people and no, I'm not going to take that gig. That's, you know, 
appreciate it, but no. But um, I go in with with being very professional, being prompt, being on time, being a good hang, and then knowing the music first and foremost. And then something that a lot of people skip is um, following up with the artist. Hmm. So if I do a rehearsal with them, I'm going to, I may even prompt that beforehand and go up and just, hey, I just want to let you know if there's anything that you need from me, if there's anything, you know, I'm coming into this new too, if there's anything I can do to support you, you're needing something for me, just let me know and I'll make notes of it. And then I follow up with them and say, hey, was everything cool in rehearsal? Anything you need me to adjust? Tempo's okay. Uh, I'm going to be going in. That's another thing. Always have the tempos dialed in. Uh, always have a set list with tempos on them and be ready to pull those so you can click things off. Um, it's those little things that get you called back. It's the playing is a given at this, at the level that, um, I'm able to play at these days as far as the gigs I take. And are Um, you playing with a click with those tempos or are you just remembering them by memory? Uh, depends on the gig tonight. We'll all be to, I'll, I'll be running the band to a click. We don't have any tracks, but I'll have a, I have a little in-ear setup uh, that I run and I can throw the uh, monitor, uh, my wedge cable into that. So I can run ears and have monitors and then also have an external click with my phone. I run uh, the tempo app by frozen ape is my favorite for gigging because you can make set lists that are really long. And uh, editing those set lists is super easy. So if I'm in a rehearsal and they say, hey, can we do that two clicks faster? It just sits better there. Can literally two punches of a button and overwrite that song and we're ready to roll on to the next one. So it's a really, uh, uh, it's a a tool I use in a lot of gigs now. It just depends though. Some of them just want reference tempos and some of them want the the whole thing to a click. So to me, so much experience, so much practical uh, life experience with drumming. How did you get there, Stephen? Where did it all begin for you? When, when did you fall in love with the drums? When did I fall in love with the drums? Um, I think the point I fell in love with the drums was whenever I set up my first drum kit and uh, I put on the Weezer Blue album in my my living room and I just set them up. I didn't know how to play and I just bashed through the entire album. Just the, I knew the album, you know, I knew all the songs and could keep a tempo. And that was really when I was like, I think that this is, this is pretty cool. Like, I think I could, you know, do something with this. I didn't get my first kit till I was 14, which is later than most people. But, uh, my dad was a pastor. My mom was a minister of music, um, at certain points in my life. And so I had early exposure to music and had a, a real love for it. Uh, but that was when I started taking lessons. I hooked up with uh, my, at that time, my minister of music, uh, Joseph Britton. And um, he's really kind of like another father figure to me. And he's the one that put me on that stage the first week I had my drums and said, hey, just watch my hands. You'll be fine. Mm. And I'm like, ah, buddy, I don't think we're going to be fine. I think <laughs> this is going to be a bad deal for right. everyone involved. Right. Um, but from that day and the next week, he came and he said, hey, here's a teacher you need to study with. And so he was really, and that teacher happened to be uh, Henrique de Almeida, and he's now at um, uh, Berkeley uh, in Boston as one of their lead percussion teachers. Uh, just an amazing player. And I had him teaching me at age 14. Wow. Uh, and I walked in and he said, I don't take high school students. And I, that, it's okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, Thanks. you know, he kind of set the precedent for you screw up and you're out. Oh. And um, uh, I, just, I just really started working hard. And, um, yeah, started, started taking stage shows hmm. at around 16 and just really, it was, I think Joseph had a, 
had an agenda for building a drummer he could use right. and call on any time. And that was right. kind of what happened. And so um, he really gave me all my first opportunities and, um, and got me to that level. Uh, Henrik, Jeff Mills, uh, Dr. John Wooten, uh, they were all very instrumental in my, in my, uh, Harold Bosarge was another teacher that wow. was very instrumental in my upbringing. Yeah. Very, very important teachers, but something was, you know, you know, lit a fire under you. Cause some, some guys, some kids, 14 years old, bash around on a set of drums and they go, okay, great. That's fun. But you followed it much more. Why do you think that passion was there? Where did that come from for you? You know, I don't know. Um, I think honestly it was, uh, I had a punk group, uh, we were called the goodies. And so that was kind of my, my outlet for like my passion at the time, which was punk, punk rock and the energy and all of that. Um, but I think getting into the really being exposed early on to uh, high levels, uh, high level players, because Joseph would hire these players that were just amazing. Mm. Uh, Henrik was the drummer he was hiring before he got the kid that had just gotten his drum set. Right. <laughs> so like I'm mixing with these guys and my playing is not anywhere near where it should be. And I think really hearing those guys and seeing this world of playing stage shows and being in the pit and the excitement of the curtains opening and us pulling off a successful show and locking with the bass player, all those early memories mm. drove me to practice in my practice time. Um, and I've always been one that once I commit to something, I, I delegate the time to it. And I'm, you know, I'm very judicious about, about making sure I show up and put the work in. Hmm. Uh, and so when I graduated high school, it was between, uh, graphic design. I was big into art as well, okay. uh, all through high school or music. And, uh, and so I chose music and whenever I, uh, what sealed the deal was Jeff Mills was my drum teacher, uh, around 18 or 19. And he got a, a gig from, uh, a drummer, Raymond Weber, who was, uh, the drummer on Harry Connick Jr. She and Star Turtle Funk albums. He was out with Jewel for a little while. Uh, he's, he's now with, uh, I think dumpster funk. He's, he's very big in the new Orleans area as far as just a pillar of that community. Yeah. He had left a gig at the famous store and Jeff had gotten that gig. Mm. And, um, after the transition about six months, they wanted to start another day band and Jeff called me and talked them into giving me the gig. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's make no qualms about that. Right. Uh, and, uh, and he, once I started you know, on Bourbon Street, it's a built-in crowd. There's gonna, yeah. It's going to be packed every night. Right. And so getting that feedback daily and being able to, to practice during the day and then take that and apply it to a, the segue into the chorus of the sec, you know, second song, that kind of thing, yeah. I just saw my playing improve so dramatically that you know, it really hooked me as far as being able to do it for a living. Amazing. What was that first gig on Bourbon Street like for you? <laughs> it, was, it was so bad, bro. It was so bad. So I'm 19. The guitar player was mid-50s. Okay. Um, the bass player was late 40s. Yeah. Um, we had horns. So I'm playing music. I knew. They gave me the set list. I showed up and they said, hey, here's the set list. What do you know? And I looked at the set list and I said, uh, yeah, I know Brick House and Funky Music. And that was it. Yeah. And the wow. guitar player looked at me. He's like, what do you listen to? I'm like, bro, I'm 19. Like, <laughs> what? All the bands I listen to are not on here, you know? <laughs> and uh, so that was a real education for me going in there. But uh, it was so bad. I, I mean, I didn't get the set list beforehand. And, and so wow. just hanging on by the skin of my teeth and... Uh, to give you an example, they called late in the evening 
which is, you know, the infamous Mozambique group by Steve Gadd, who plays with four sticks. And yeah, wow. I had no clue who Paul Simon was or, you know, why you needed 50 ways to leave a lover or any of that stuff, you know. So they call that song and I'm like, what's the, you know, what's the feel? Oh, it's kind of this, you know, clickety clack. I'm like, I don't make any sense. So we started and I just started straight four on the floor. to late in the evening. That's great. So that was a lot of my learning experience. And um, there was a, there was a horn player, sax player. This is an art that I think is becoming more lost uh, with the more PC our culture gets being politically correct about everything. Yeah. There's this, uh, and way back in, in early jazz, it was very accepted. It was a, it was a cutting phase for young players. Hmm. Uh, and they would cut on you, you know, hmm. you I need see. to do this better. This is not happening. Get off the stage. And it was a very abrasive way of teaching you very quickly. Yeah. Don't make that mistake again, or you're fired type of a deal. Right. And, um, I had a horn player named Bobby O. And he had run bands for Disney at Disney World, big bands. And just, I mean, the guy rode me day in and day out. And we showed up for, for a show one day. Had had two days off. We showed up. We played the first song. And he turns around and in the middle of the two songs while I'm dialing up the next tempo. He said, you didn't practice this weekend, did you? Mm. And I looked up and I said, no. And he said, I can tell. And just turned around and I had to play four more hours behind this guy of him. Just, just, just go ahead and let me know, like, you suck right now. We all can hear it. Great. Let's go on with the show, you know? <laughs> and uh, I almost lost my gig because I, uh, Jeff came over one night and said, you're about to lose your gig because you, you, know, you don't have any groove. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a dance club and no one was dancing when I played. And that's a problem in a dance club. Well, sure, so, sure. Uh, and so I had to go about that whole process of, sweating it out and figuring out, okay, well, what's groove? Mm, <laughs> How do I right. get that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there was a, there was a cutting phase that happened that I think uh, should happen a lot more these days. And I've seen some guys almost tiptoe around it yeah. uh, in the past few years. And, and I'm like, you need to dig in, like yeah. dig into them a little bit, be, be loving, be nice, yeah. but kind of get them over here and give them one, sure. let them know where they need to go with it. Right. Yeah. I mean, sometimes that's the way we learn, right? Some of that trial by fire, but needing some of that feedback, whether from the band members or teachers like you and yeah, so not, not so much that they just run away, but, and that's pretty cool. You didn't run away. Something in you said, okay, I'll show you and keep doing this. Right. Yeah. And you know, and the thing about it is once you make one of those mistakes in those situations, yeah. Uh, going back to a bass player that I referenced earlier that just, uh, was not up to snuff. Yeah. I felt bad during the gig because I don't even think he could hear that he was not correct. And I knew it from where I was. This is a one-off gig, so I wasn't about to dig in right. uh, as far as that. But if we'd have done another rehearsal, there'd have been some digging in. But yeah. it really takes being self-aware and having others point out that that doesn't sound good when you do that, or we can tell when you don't practice. And so just that one line, I've never showed up to a gig you know, without practicing without knowing the stuff without and that's all it took was for Bobby O to say that one thing to me and every time mm. I hear this you didn't practice this weekend did you yep. it gets you back in the practice room it makes it, it those mistakes really get burned into the the psyche right some learning lessons there right so what was the dream when with that 20 year old kid Stephen what was the dream of where you wanted music to go for you that's a good discussion um, 
so when I started out, I didn't, I didn't really understand what all being um, a hired gun was, what being a musician was, what that entailed, what the family life looked like, the tolls it takes on your personal life, your professional, all of those things. I didn't understand all of the moving parts of that. I just knew I loved music and I saw guys out there doing it and I wanted to do that. Um, I never, I never wanted to be famous. That was never a thing with me. My big thing, C.S. Lewis talked about it in one of his books. It's like the inner circle. Mm. So it's like a circle of people within whatever craft you're in. Mm. And whenever people are, you know, having beers, there's coffee and they, it's, their name is mentioned. They go, oh yeah, that guy, yeah, that guy. Right. he knows. Like that's the inner circle. It's not spoken right. about, but everyone knows who's in there. And when I was a kid, that was always like, I, I want to be like in just kind of that. Yeah. I don't want to be not legendary or famous. I just want to be respected in the field that I choose to work in. I want people whenever my name is brought up for them to have respect for what I'm doing and not be considered a knockoff in my craft. I wanted to really bring something to what I do. And so started doing it, got out of college, uh, moved to Nashville, did the Nashville thing of getting plugged in, taking whatever gigs comes. And um, it just was, you know, one month would be fantastic. And you would be playing in front of 20,000 people at a festival with an artist on the charts. And the next night you would be at, you know, a dive bar in this little town on the, you know, outskirts of Tennessee playing to three guys with chicken wire in front of you. Like it was just this dichotomy of like, okay, like I'm bringing kids into the world now. I got a family. Is this going to work? Is this, can we make this sustainable? Sure. And so uh, after one particularly bad gig, where I had picked it up and we had two subs on the gig and we played at this, um, we played at this, uh, it was like a multi, it had a bowling alley, but then it also had like this nightclub bar. Yep. But then it also had batting cages on the inside. And so it's like the batting cages and the bar nightclub, like grinding scene and then also bowling. And so Multi-purpose. kids are walking around, but then also drunks. And it's like, wow, what is the scene here? Like, yeah, right. And so we're the band and, the sound man, it sounds like something may have, the sound man's mother had just died. Oh no. Uh, he's crying while he's setting up oh, my he God. Needs the money for the gig. Yeah. Uh, the guitar player can't figure out what key any of the songs are in. The sub girl singer can't carry a tune in a bucket. I wind up actually unplugging my monitor. It sounds so bad. And I'm like, if I can just, I'll just, they can call a song and I'll just play it from memory and we'll we'll muscle through this. Right. We take our first break. We had emptied the play sound. Wow. And I went and sat on the steps of the batting cages. Hmm. <laughs> just, and we're talking about low points of life. Right. And I was like, I just don't, I don't think they're, I mean, they shouldn't let us play anymore. This, that was so bad, you know, that, and, and here I was, I got a college degree and worked and honed my craft. And this is what it's come to me in the steps of a batting cage. Yeah. And uh, the band leader, sure enough, comes down and he said, hey, uh, they paid us uh, partially and they just want us to stop. And I'm like, got it. And on the drive home, it's about a 45 minute drive home. I just I said, I can't keep doing this. I don't have any say so over who I work with, Mm. where I work, what the situation is, how much it pays. I don't have any control over this career. I'm just taking whatever comes in because I need to make the money to feed mouths. You know, I had my wife and we had a newborn. And um, so I got home. I just told her, I said, I think I need to get a nine to five and something with insurance and we'll see. And she, you know, is she's been the best support over the years. 
she said, are you, you know, feeling okay? Or you? Yeah, right. I said, no, I'm just, I'm tired. I, I, I don't, I don't see this being sustainable and I don't want to try to figure it out while I'm muscling through things like I just did. Sure. So, uh, I shadowed a couple of musicians and, uh, wound up getting my personal trainer's license and completely leaving music. And she said, well, are you going to come back into it? And I said, I don't know, but if I do, I'll say when I work, who I work with, how much I make the situation I'm working in. And I told her, I said, maybe I, we had literally just bought our first computer. This sounds like a long time ago, but it was, this was like, 2007, 2008, um, you know, I was a poor college kid. I didn't have money to buy computers. They had a computer lab. Right. And so I told her, I said, you know, there's this thing called YouTube and I've seen just a couple drum lessons on there. Nobody's paying for anything. I said, but maybe I'll start a blog or maybe we'll do, I said, maybe somebody would want lessons online. I don't know, but you know, we'll figure it out as we go. And so in five weeks I studied, took the test, got my personal trainer's license. Usually that whole thing takes about six months, but I just kind of hit the bullet and did it. Yeah. Uh, and for about six or seven years, I did that full time while I studied about business and decided how my career needed to look. Wow. Um, and in the meantime, hooked up with a group that just for fun mm-hmm. uh, that I had interviewed with and um, auditioned. They loved what I did. Uh, we had some issues with the lyrical content of some of what they were doing. I needed to understand what kind of band they were. Okay. And, uh, so we kind of parted on those grounds mm-hmm. of, they didn't want to be restrained. And okay. a year later I get a reply from that email and they said, Hey, are you still open? And, uh, I said, sure. So we, we got back together and, um, wound up getting signed by universal records. Mm-hmm. And so we, uh, we did that whole thing, played with some great shows. It was yeah. horrible being on a major label. Okay. <laughs> Every nightmare I ever thought it would be. Is that um, right? But, you know, you get those opportunities. It's like, I just want to say I did this. Yeah, like, sure. Say, before the whole industry crumbles, which it, it has and is, <laughs> uh, what does that look like? Yeah. You know, what, it, what, what was that? So um, did that and then uh, started, as you mentioned, online with a blog, actually. You can mm. still find it if you, if you dig deep in the recesses of the interwebs. Okay. Um, what was and, it called, Stephen? It was actually the worst name ever. I've been horrible at naming things my whole life. A drummer, et cetera, drummer ETC. Love it. And uh, I just started some of the things I was writing about what I was going through, a gig I played, I'd interview people. It was completely random. Okay. And then I uh, saved up money to buy us a house, mm-hmm. bought a house, saved up money to redo the house, mm-hmm. and then saved up money for my first studio. We got dropped by the uh, record label. Okay. And so I took a buyout from the band. Mm. Uh, there was some money involved there, not much, okay. but enough for me to buy a laptop and a video camera and yeah. start recording YouTube lessons. Yeah. And so that's when around 2009, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, um, was when I started posting on YouTube and trying to figure out if that could work, how that works. Uh, and it was three years, two and a half, three years before I monetized it, I think. Okay. Um, before I started the online drum school that I currently have. Yeah, which is, uh, and, which is Steven's Drum Shed? Yeah, stevensdrumshed.com. Yeah. Uh, and it's an online membership platform. It's built around my program called the Drum Better Daily Program. Um, it's, uh, we, I try to personalize it as much as possible for each person that comes through the door. Uh, we have questionnaires and things like that that they can fill out and get feedback from me. And everything's organized into lesson tracks. And uh, so it's, it's different than other places online because it's very... Uh, goal-oriented. It's very uh, pointed. I don't want you watching as many lessons of me as you can. I want you watching as little of me as possible and spending as much time on the drum kit as you can. So uh, yeah, I started that in October 
of 2011. So I guess maybe two years on YouTube, okay. uh, October of 2011. And it took me three months before I had enough money to actually make costs of what mm-hmm. it was costing me to run the website. Okay. And, um, from there, it's just been a slow growth. So, well, you got a fantastic YouTube channel and the website is great as well. You, you know, again, more of that practical world advice as well as the, the drum teaching. You also have a, a new gig with a cable TV show. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So that's a funny thing. <laughs> um, you never know where things are going to lead in life. So right, right. Um, I was approached by a, uh, a guitar player, actually. And I had turned down an opportunity he had wanted for like a Roku channel a couple of years back. I just didn't see the platform going anywhere. And it, and it really hasn't. Yeah. Um, and he approached me again about uh, a deal with a third party company that had developed a new uh, uh, software. I'm, you know, they called it an application. Okay. And basically it takes content curated uh, from online creators Okay. Uh, independent content and then curates that into an on-demand channel and they partner with cable TV companies okay. and deliver that content. So it's, you know, it's like you were, you know, uh, would subscribe to an HBO channel or something like that, except it's curated. They specialize in content from online creators that already have a following and a platform and or have the video content that they need, the amount that they need. Hmm. quality that they need that kind of a thing so he contacted me and i just i deleted the email um and <laughs> okay and then I, I get a lot of email and so yeah. it didn't yeah. seem like something i you know the last thing it just not in that well he contacted a couple more times and and finally you know he contacted me this this is the last chance I'm, you know time i'm going to contact you yeah i think it's a great opportunity so i said look put me in contact with him let's see what you know so the company called me and we discussed things and i said no Okay. Um, and then, uh, it just looked like a, a lot of time and I'm very big on, uh, understanding what project I'm working on, what's the goals and then saying no to a lot of other things. Right. Uh, even if they seem beneficial. Yeah. And so, um, this wasn't on my radar as something that needed to, and I cut cable cords four years ago. Yeah. I haven't had cable for four years. So literally they're saying, you know, there's these dinosaurs that you need to, you know, resurrect. And I'm like, guys, this is a ship that's sinking. Um, They didn't take, no, they kept calling me. I told her, I think I told them no, a a total of like four times. Mm. And, um, and all the people, they had curated channels like the golf channel and they had success in the, in the market. I just didn't see it as a viable market. But once they were so diligent and came to me with a deal that, you know, looked like it could work. um, I began looking at stats and and Mm. thought, okay, well, this is good for a three-year deal. So this was a year and a half ago, I think. Okay. Um, so we began the process of lawyers and all of that okay. and, and uh, making sure everybody's on the same page uh, and curating a, the first on-demand cable TV drum lesson channel. Wow. Um, so that's a, I guess that's a thing now. Um, yes, it is. What's the name of it, Stephen? Uh, it's Stephen's Drum Shed. Uh, oh, okay. And you can, if you are a, right now, uh, we're with Comcast. So we signed a deal with Comcast and I think they released it in the U S and Canada this month, I believe. Uh, and the channels, I think four ninety nine, and, awesome. uh, you can subscribe to that monthly and you get right. access to, to lots of lessons. Obviously it's not the personalized access you're going to get on the website, not the organized lesson tracks and the materials and live, but all of that, but it is lessons on your TV 
uh, for a very affordable price. We've got all 40 rudiments on there, in-depth lessons with that. They can email you the sheet music um, if, you, if you put it in. Your, so it's, it's kind of neat. We had some stumbling blocks with how, trying to figure out how to get sheet music to people and things like that. But um, yeah, so we launched this month and, and I've started hearing from, I don't have Comcast in my town. So okay. uh, I started hearing from people that they're, they've seen it. And so yeah, it's, it's been a pretty cool experience. That's great. So it's a lot of your, the website, a lot of your lessons and videos on that cable TV station. Correct. On Comcast, their platform and, and okay. we'll branch out to other uh, cable providers as well. But I, I, you know, this was kind of the, the first launch out with them. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's, it's fun. It's a fun thing. I never, I never thought I would be uh, creating a TV channel. So that's right, right. been a, it's been a big learning curve. It's very cool. So, you know, you're one of the guys too online who I really like, who, who not only talks about drumming, but the business of music. Can you talk about how some of that's changed since you started and some, just some top advice for musicians who'd like to get to where you are. Sure. So, um, the music business has always been changing and really the anomaly that we've had is the past hundred or so years, not even a hundred years where a middleman has become in between the artist and the fan. Mm -hmm. And we figured out, how to reproduce a plastic, you know, replication of the song whenever we could put it on film or we could put it on some type of CD or disc or vinyl or whatever, cassette, eight track, whatever that may be. And now we have a widget. When you have a widget that you can, that you can sell, then you have a business model and in comes the record labels, right? So you used to, it was artists. You play a show to your fans. They had to come see the music to come, the same way music publishing. Music publishing used to be about sheet music. Mm-hmm. And they had piano song pluggers that would go plug the songs and you bought the sheet music if you write. Right. Music publishing is zero about that now. It's about how many plays you got on here and the Spotify and how much your earnings from the iTunes. It's completely there. It has nothing to do with sheet music. The music industry is the same way. So music labels never came around until we had a widget that they could sell. And then they sold that widget off of one good song. They would sell 10 to 12 songs and make $15 off of one song, really. The one song that hit or whatever. The only way to get that song is to get the whole album. They're a record label. They sell records. That's the anomaly. The anomaly is the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, these huge artists that the record label can push and sell a ton of units and become worldwide fans. That was the anomaly. What's happening now is that's crumbling, which is great. And really, it started back with the early mid-70s with the punk scene, yeah. where they're getting signed by labels and telling their labels to go right. take a leap off a you know, right. bridge in so many terms yeah. because they didn't like doing what they said they had to do. Right. So you really started seeing kind of the seeds of the dissolution of the record industry. Mm. And then you come into the 80s and you have glam rock and they're just printing money hand over fist. Right. And then you come in and all the grunge era comes in. And all of a sudden you have guys like Kurt Cobain. And what do you do with that music? Because they don't care if you sell any records. They don't, they, the point is that some of it sounds bad. And I, one, of, one of our A&R guys from the label, he said, we were all sitting in a room when we heard that, you know, one of the first tunes from Nirvana and we all shook our heads because we, right. we knew it was over. The, 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 the age of printing money from these glam rock bands was coming to an end. And so you see it coming little little. Then we have the internet who is great at taking out the middleman. 
because now we have the internet. And so we were really at the best time ever. A lot of people, especially musicians that have been in the industry, and that's the ones it's the hardest for, the ones that have been in the industry and they did make a living yeah. off of record sales or they made a living off of being a hired gun for a touring artist who depended on a record label. Yes. Um, those are guys taking the hits right now. Mm. But it's the best time in the history of the world to be a musician, an independent artist, a marimba player from Ohio. It doesn't matter because internet, it's the great equalizer. If you're good, you can get your stuff out there. You can, I mean, I had to go try to get gigs and play for free. You can literally make your own gig on play on out on platforms like stage it, which is a free live streaming platform where people can tip you. They can come to your show and tip you online. Mm. Like it's crazy that you can do that kind of stuff. Mm. No, one of the guys, uh, one of the leading performers on stage, it would make like nine, ten thousand dollars a show. Wow. And one of his sticks was I've got a buddy that's friends with him. One of his, and I don't say that like, oh, I know people. I say that like I've got that knowledge from actually yeah. talking to people that know them. One of the great things was, I mean, he, you know, he tried it in his first show. He said, hey, the person that tips the most, I'm going to fly to your house the next show and we're going to stream from there. Wow. It just has to be enough to get me there. That's ding, great. ding, 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 ding. People start, and it doesn't take that many fans to make a living off of selling your thing. So really it's a matter of finding your niche and then producing quality content and being consistent about it. Um, being, uh, being uh, always uh, aware of quality and always looking and being real with how the market is. You know, I don't sit there and complain that I don't get to make any publishing royalties off of, you know, all their plays on Spotify or YouTube, or I'm not going to get that many royalties from a, a streaming. I don't care. Because I'm just so much of the mindset of that's where we are right now. Let's deal with it. How can we survive and make money? And people also, I believe, need to have some perspective because especially in the United States, this is the most successful country that's ever been in the history of the world. We are living in a very, very privileged time right now. And what they don't understand is if you're making $40,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of the world. And when you have some perspective like that, we just went to Mexico and we were driving through towns and people were living in shanties in these shacks. And it's just, I traveled a lot when I was younger and, and got to experience a lot of very uh, poor regions. And so if we, if we understand that you not only have the opportunity, but you can make a living doing what you love. And notice I said, make a living. I didn't say you can be a rock star and make $3 million a year. You can make a good living doing what you love, like what I do. I feed five mouths with what I do. You know, that's my, when I'm looking at my month, my goal is feed five mouths. That's what I got to do. And I'm able to do that by teaching, by playing music, but that's an amazing thing, you know, gift, right? So, um, I think just realizing where we are in the record uh, or in the recording industry, realizing that there's not record labels that are going to sign you and give you, you know, a million dollar signing bonus and put you in a studio for six months on an island so that you know it's going to happen right. because they're not making money. They're signing 10, 15 artists at a time, throwing them at a wall, whatever sticks, they put some money towards that. Yep. They're leaching off of people that already have uh, followings online. Right. Part of them signing you now is what does your social media look like? What are you doing outside of here? And the deals suck, man. Mm-hmm. The deals they're doing right now, if you sign with a major label, over 50 50 i mean wow. used to you could sell your merch and you got the door they're taking 50 percent of the door they're taking 50 percent of album sales if not more they're taking 50 percent of your merch they're wow. taking everything yeah. everything so it's not a good deal for the artist 
sucks, bro. It sucks. I, we were doing our deal, and we took three months to really talk through it. And this was eight years ago, seven years ago. So it would have been 2008, 2009, something like that. I don't remember exactly when. Um, and even then, I told them, I said, because then you dealt with publishing, and who gets the most publishing in the band? And Well, he wrote, writes most of the songs, and so he's not going to come off as publishing. And so now we're dealing with, okay, well, now we, he gets 67% publishing, and he's splitting 33% between three other guys, and that means I get 11 cents for all of his 67 mm, And I'm putting this, you know, it's like that kind of a thing. And I looked at the deal, and I just told the guys, I said, this is really cool, and it's a neat experience. I don't see how we'll ever sell. I don't, I don't see, unless we sell Nickelback numbers, I don't know how we're going to make decent yeah. money off of this absolutely you know? yeah and so uh i think it's just really realizing we're in a ideal time to be an artist and to go after what you love and and to um to be consistent with it and to find your audience yeah uh, you know if you can find that you know a thousand true fans i think that's the name of the article it's a fantastic read and it's really true if you can get a thousand people that will buy whatever you put out right a thousand raving fans it's all you need as an artist you don't need the world Right. You just need to produce content for them and art for them. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I could rant on that for a while because I'm. I, I think it's just an excellent time to be a musician. Well, and I love hearing that because I've heard that from other folks as well, as well as other folks who said it's a struggle. But you know, that's a really hopeful message that you don't need the middleman as much. You can connect right through this, you know, interweb here, right to your core audience and that will help sustain you. So, And one of the things that I hear a lot is, um, yeah, but then I can't just focus on my art. I'm going to have to do the booking and I'm going to have to hire the bands. I'm going to have to do this. I'm like, bro, I never said you wouldn't have to work. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, I thought we were having this conversation with it being a given. You were working. It's right. a music right. business. You are, you're working. That's right. it's all, I put a lot of work into what I do. I put a lot of long hours into what I do. Yeah. Um, so anybody that's coming in, don't, don't come in thinking it's not going to be work and you're going to get to just play your ukulele all day or whatever instrument you play. You, it's work. And writing the music is only a very small part of that work. The rest is distribution. How are you going to get it to people? How are you going to find you? All of those things. Right. Yeah, definitely. And, and I imagine some of that time out that you had from leaving music to being a personal trainer and doing some business schooling that actually probably helped you with your business skills. I imagine. Yeah. I, 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 uh, I began reading as much as I could about uh, business and business models and how to build something. What is a widget? How do we, you know, like all of those things and, and really business, I find it to be a very ethical thing. That's one of the most ethical things we can do is provide value for, uh, a person for their, their hard earned money. You know, uh, I, I, to give you an example of this, uh, a lot of times people think of business and profits as like these evil things. Right. I, I, ha- I went to my sister's house a couple weeks ago. She has the table that we grew up eating around. Mm. Uh, she has, you know, it's passed down to her. Yeah. And I was sitting there and all I could think about was, man, how many times have I sat at this table and eaten food, you know, and the salesman that sold that to her made, what, a couple hundred bucks in commission? Right. Long spent that. Right. right. And yet, 30 years later, I'm still sitting at the table getting value yes. from that. And so if we kind of flip it, I find business to be very ethical and, and learn as much as, <clears throat> as you can about uh, business whenever you're going into music yeah. as well. 
uh, all the guys that have done that, that I've seen are, are successful with what they're doing. Yeah, it's very cool. So, you know, the other video that I saw recently around some of the business stuff, which I loved, and I know this is a controversial issue, but playing for free. Can you talk a little bit about your viewpoint on that? Big fan of it. Yeah. Um, and it was a topic that I kind of started looking back at. I started doing this gigging drummer series on the YouTube channel. And anytime you start teaching something or start a regular series or whatever that is, it causes you to actually deconstruct, okay, well, A, what are my thoughts on this? B, what is my experience on this? And, uh, and so I started, uh, I do a lot of gigs for free if I'm able to. I play now because I want to. The business is able to sustain what I do with my family. And cool. so I take the gigs I want to. And uh, so I started kind of talking about playing for free and then really started thinking about my experience with playing for free and uh, came to a really, um, it, w- it was a surprising conclusion for me. I could trace every paid experience I had back to free gigs. Um, all of the contacts that I got, the experience I had, all of that went back to free gigs. So I mean, going back to all the what we talked about earlier, starting to play in the church, Joseph was the first person that hired me. Uh, he hired me for a stage show at Christmas. I met other players, and they liked how I played, so they hired me for their high school stage shows. I met bass players in that, so they hired me for Laurel Little Theater shows. I met, you know, I met, I met, I met, I met, I met. And I just kept in contact. And no matter what the, the situation was, free or not, I always just tried to come in and do my best. And I realized that by the time I graduated high school, I had a few thousand hours of stage time and rehearsal time. That's incredible. That put me well ahead of the curve because I was playing in church on Wednesday nights, Sunday morning, and Sunday nights. We had rehearsals for all of those. Wow. So I had three gigs with three rehearsals every week. Wow. Every week for, from age 14 until uh, almost graduating high school. Wow. And so when I started adding up those hours, I'm like, man, that's a lot of early exposure here. With high-level musicians that are coaching me, it it all adds up, and all that came from free. Uh, Doing shows with Lovers and Liars, the band that got signed with Universal Records. Free. I played in that band. I paid to be in that band for a long time. Uh, And and that money was the seed money that allowed me to start this. Uh, You know, I posted on YouTube for two years for free. I still do three free videos a week on YouTube and people are like, Oh, you've monetized ads on your YouTube channel. I don't think anybody understands what you actually make off of ads on YouTube. <laughs> like <laughs> like the, YouTube, the money from the YouTube ads that I make doesn't even really pay enough for me to pay the guy that edits all the videos and the thumbnails and stuff, you know, like let's get some perspective on, you know, it also really helps the algorithm with the ads and how YouTube views you. Sure. So, uh, it, it's, it, those are those are free, or shall I say, I spend more than I make. Right. Uh, when it comes to that type, of, so we're about to start a podcast that'll be free. Great. A ton of free materials on my website. Yeah. Uh, I'm just a very big proponent of playing, getting the exposure, and then only starting to turn down things whenever you're honestly just too busy. Okay. To take those things, you know, I played free yesterday at my church. Uh, we had a rehearsal and a show. Um, at you know and. Some guys are paid to play church, some aren't. It, it's just, I've always been a proponent of give back to the community, mm-hmm. be a good person, do your best, and network. And if you do that, you will continue to play. 
uh, and continue to get gigs. So hmm. the best place to start is where you are. Go volunteer at an elderly community and, and do a concert for them once a Saturday. Hmm. Uh, go volunteer at your church. Go to the local Boys and Girls Club and teach drum lessons for free. Go like I can list off over and over and over all day all the free things you can do. Hmm. Um, and and that, that will give you exposure and experience and eventually lead to something. So, well, yeah, and it seems like, as I love it, because it seems like it's an investment as well. Not only, you know, spreading good stuff in the world, but also the networking you talked about as far as the connections and meeting people, which ultimately led to some of those paid gigs and now being a professional musician and supporting your family with it. It's great. Yeah. I mean, I the free gigs I did when I was 16, I was playing with the best players in my town. Uh, Hattiesburg, Mississippi is where I'm from. Okay. So I was playing with the with the director of the jazz program at the university. Uh, I was rubbing arms with the guy that would later be my professor, uh, Dr. John Wooten. I was I was playing with all these guys that were pros and were teaching others. And I was 16 years old. Like, yeah, I got a stage show with him, you know. Right. So it's when I went into the university, they already knew me as that kid that was. I was the kid on the street that was already playing. Yeah. You know, I may not know technically as much as all these other guys and I can't play the black page like you, but right. I can definitely hold down this gig and you can. Right. So, and that's what, that's something that my, you know, professor told me whenever I took the gig on Bourbon Street. Hmm. Uh, he said, look, don't let anybody talk down to you because you took a pop gig or because he right. said, at the end of the day, they're flipping burgers and you're playing music. He right. said, I think it, I think it pans out. Absolutely. Well, that, there's all kinds of different types of gold, and that's gold right there, even if it didn't land in your pocket, right? So, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh, a couple more questions, Steve, because I know you got your gig. Um, you seem like such an accomplished drummer, you know, educator, and you're, you're teaching folks drums. What are you still working on in your drumming? Oh, everything <laughs> so actually after this right before i go to the gig i'm writing out my plan for the next few months for my practice time okay. wow um i took a long break from drumming so when i quit to, to do personal training um i took a big break from it mm. and because i didn't have the time i was training 55 sessions a week wow. which is a lot for trainer sure. um and uh so i feel like i'm still getting some things back from that break years back. Uh, and right now what I'm, what I'm practicing is um, uh, the, the core fundamentals, my technique, I'm going back and really troubleshooting small things with my technique that show up, hand technique, like this pinky's not performing how it should when I'm doing finger control and French grip, like those types of things. Uh, and then as well, going back to real fundamentals of singles between the hands and the feet, doubles between the hands and the feet, and working on being able to string the ideas I have and have worked on uh, the patterns, be able to string those together in a cohesive format, um, whether that be in a solo or use them in a song, and really go more for uh, not chops and not flash, but just saying something on the drum kit. A lot of my favorite players uh, are just drummers, Tony Williams, Ari Honig, um, uh, who's some of the Antonio Sanchez, these guys, um, they're, they're playing more for Brian blades. Another one that I love, mm. you'll hear rim clicks and you'll hear dirty things and you'll go, was that a, what, what subdivision was that? And it was, they weren't going for that. They were going for a sound. And that's, so I spent a lot of my practice time trying to develop 
uh, my voice at this point and also clean up some things that fell by the wayside. Love it. You're, you're, you're all always still learning as well as teaching. That's very cool. And, you know, for, for folks who are watching this in the future, Steve, maybe a top one or two piece of advice that you would have for a musician, for a drummer or any musician. Mm. Um, I think the first one, and I learned this more and more as I, as I get older, but it, it's um, uh, be humble. And that can be applied to a, a lot of areas. Obviously, be humble, uh, be aggressive when it comes to practicing and, and, and getting to know people and, you know, be, be go-getter. But be humble when it comes to the music. Don't try to impose what you were working on in your practice time on this thing if it doesn't fit. Um, be humble with the people you meet. Always be the first with a compliment. Be humble in taking any type of, of constructive criticism. Uh, be humble in giving constructive criticism. Be humble in your teaching. Uh, those types of things. I think is, uh, humility is a big deal uh, when it comes to being successful in anything. Um, and then just the thing we were just talking about is never stop learning, never stop learning, whether that be new software or how can I, you know, I just went through a new video recorder that I can embed video in the email so I can better communicate with my students. And like, I had a learning curve there, you know, and I'm just constantly like, how can I better communicate? How can I do this? How can I, how can I clean up my playing? I'm always wanting to learn and and, and, uh, and I, I have a whole, uh, business, I call it the, the unbusiness school. It's 12 books. I'm going to read this year and go through and apply to my business. The same with my teaching. I've got six books for teaching, I go through and try to apply to my teaching. Hmm. So I'm always trying to, I'm, I've got a base. I'm sitting here looking at a base. That's one of my goals is to learn the base this year. Okay. Uh, I think we need to be constant learners because I think if we can keep a beginner's mind, hmm. it, it helps us to understand when a student comes in, yeah. um, and they have a problem or maybe they're blocked mentally or whatever that is. It helps us because we can go, you know what? I get it because I'm not, I wasn't learning drums, but I'm a beginner on the bass. Totally. It's killing me. And so you can kind of look at it from that viewpoint and, and have some empathy from that point. So Absolutely. I think humility and uh, being a constant learner, always trying to keep that beginner's mind. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's great wisdom, practical, wonderful wisdom right there. And Stephen, I think you've made it to that inner circle and that respect that we were talking about before. Uh, I certainly respect you, and I think you're doing fantastic work in the world with your music. Thank you so much, Stephen Taylor, for being on Musicians on the Record. Thank you. That, that really means a lot. I appreciate it.